Kate Evans here. Right now, however, we're going to talk about the history and the story of the Fijoa. The Fijoa has cemented itself as a Kiwi favourite. It will be in season in about a month's time. But for the tangy and gritty fruit, New Zealand is not home. Its origins are in South America. Kate Evans is an award-winning journalist and regular contributor to National Geographic, and she's also a self-proclaimed Fijoa fanatic. And over the course of a decade, she's spoken to scientists, historians and horticulturalists worldwide, visited four continents to trace the Fijoa right back to its Brazilian beginnings. Her book is Fijoa, A Story of Obsession and Belonging. It's part science writing and part personal memoir and seeks to uncover why, out of all places, New Zealand took in the fruit as its own. She's in the Hamilton studio. Kate, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. I'm great, thanks. Just a quick correction. I write for New Zealand Geographic, oh, not National Geographic. There we go. Done. Um, well, not so far. Well, I've done one piece for them on the website. <laughs> <laughs> but I've written probably 100 for New Zealand Geographic. The obsession with the Fijoa. Uh, Fijoa or Fijoa for you, by the way? I say Fijoa, but my dad says Fijoa. Okay. The obsession with the Fijoa for you began... When and how? Yeah, when I was when I was a kid. My dad loves Fijoas and we had a Fijoa hedge that encircled the orchard at home where in Lee where I was growing up and my sisters and I would come home from school, walk down the gravel driveway, chuck off our school bags and start hoving into the Fijoas under the tree, cutting them in half with a knife and eating them out with a spoon. Classic New Zealand childhood experience. At the start, let me confess, I'm not a fan. So... What is it that you... I heard an intake of breath. The last time I heard that, Catherine. it was Monica Lewinsky being interviewed by Kim Hill. Um, and I remember what she asked her. But anyway, um, what is it that you love that I don't? What? Tell me the Fijoa. Well, I'm, I'm just curious. Do you? Does it taste kind of um, medicinal or cleaning product to smells you? Smells a bit funny and probably the gritty's not me and probably... Is it quite sweet? I don't have a sweet tooth. Oh, no, it's not that sweet. Mm. Maybe it's the texture that's a problem for but you. A bit of a, a bit of an odour. Mm, yeah, well, a very strong fragrance. So what do you love? I Well, I love the, the scent of it. It's so unique. It doesn't smell like anything else. Um, and the taste is very much, like, caught up in the smell of it. Um, when I haven't... I live overseas for a long time, and when I managed to find a very expensive Fijoa and cut it open, that, like, first smell would really transport me home to New Zealand to my to my family home and and to my childhood so there's something sort of emotional and powerful about it but the actual flavor of it I find it really it is sweet but it's also tangy it's refreshing there's a whole lot of different flavors going on there and there are several textures which if you're not down with um, <laughs> I can understand why you wouldn't like them but there's a sort of there's like a jelly center and then there's the gritty edge and I really like that combination I think that childhood thing is relevant as you say uh, taste uh, um, fragrance very associated with taste uh, and both very associated with memory which is a large part of this book right mm. um, so when I was a kid it was it was plum trees in summer and it was probably apple trees off the apple tree in the backyard and I think they were they might have been Cox's orange or something they were pretty, pretty yeah. well and ready but 
if you start with a love as a child, odds are you're gonna you're gonna carry it through. Yeah, and I would say that even if you don't, even if you hate Fijoas, you'll find a lot of things that are interesting to you in this book because if it's not Fijoas for you, it's it's some other fruit, or it's some other food that has this kind of powerful effect on you. Let's start the journey then. It was a visit in, in, in to South America in 2019 that marked the start of a cross continental trip. But your research started well before then. Um, what what what's the sort of the what's the journey you've been on across all parts of the story, Kate? Yeah, so I moved back home to New Zealand in at the end of twenty thirteen. I just turned thirty. I've been living overseas for twelve years, and I was really excited to be here for a whole Fijoa season. I couldn't wait. Um, and as I you know that that year, as I as I <laughs> ate as many Fijos as I could, I started to wonder like why was it that this was the taste of home for me when it came from South America. And, you know, for New Zealanders, they, they really, they're this mean, for me, they're this meaningful fruit that has more meaning than, than any, than, than, than an apple for me. Um, but there must have been people who the Fijo was meaningful for before me, um, people in its home countries, the indigenous peoples in that place. And I really, I just got really curious, like what has this fruit meant to other people in other parts of the world and other times? And how did it get to be the way that it was? Like, why is it green? And why is it so fragrant? Why does it fall to the ground when it's ripe? What are the evolutionary reasons behind this? And yeah, so one question led to another. And I just, on the side, just started researching this. Um, and because I have travelled a lot in South America, I, have, I speak Spanish, I have a connection to those places. I was so interested that it was this sort of unusual connection between New Zealand and the South American countries. Um, so then I started, I went that year in 2014, uh, I went overseas for work, I went to Peru for a conference, so on the way I stopped in Uruguay for a week. Um, I found out I was pregnant four days before, so I was quite tired. But um, And I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just kind of exploring it. But I had this contact, um, an Uruguayan chef, a woman living outside of the city on this tiny little farm. And she was sort of single-handedly trying to revive the fruit, native fruit culture of Uruguay, including Fijoas. Um, so I went to meet her, and that was the start of it. What is its origin story, if you like, the earliest evidence we have, say, of humans eating Fijoas? Yeah, so I found this out later in 2019. I got some funding from Creative New Zealand and the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust so I could go and specifically research Fijoas. Um, I went to Brazil on that trip and I connected with a scientist in Florianópolis in Santa Catarina, which is in the south of Brazil. And he and some of his students took me up into the highlands, which is where they think the evolutionary centre of origin is for the Fijoa, like where it evolved. It's this amazing forest. The trees there are Araucaria trees, which are related to the Norfolk pine. They're really weird-shaped, super ancient. They have these great big nuts that... Um, kind of formed the basis of the food supply for the indigenous peoples there and they took me uh, to this archaeological site which was about 1500 years old there's a series of pit houses around like surrounded by araucaria trees and all of these fruit trees like not just heaps of fijoas almost plant almost like in lines as though they'd been planted and then all of these other fruiting um, trees that are relatives of the fijoa in, in that forest there's a whole bunch of different um cool, delicious fruits that are related to Fijo. You must have felt like you were in the Garden of Eden, did you? It was amazing. Um, and and you'd then absolutely you could, have eaten the apple, wouldn't you? 
<laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> the videos weren't quite right, but there was another thing called an uvaya that I got to try, which was delicious. Oh. But, um, yeah, so the people, there's, it's it's like circumstantial evidence. So we don't mm. know for sure that these people ate Is this the protégé people in my, in my um, southern protégé Yeah, the southern, people. well, that's what the archaeologists call them, the southern protégé. They must have had a more beautiful name for themselves. Oh. 4,000 um, years ago, perhaps. Yeah, so that's when they, they arrived in, in that part of South America. Right. Um, so they would have discovered it surely because it was growing there um, under the Araucaria trees. And then, um, yeah, so there is, there's little bits of evidence, like some, some ra- little round seeds that could be Fajoa seeds found in a funerary urn that's 800 years old. Um, and then this archaeological site surrounded by Fijoas as though the people had brought them back and planted them near their houses or thrown them away and they'd grown, you know, thrown, mm. thrown the skins and the seeds away and they'd, and they'd grown nearby. Um, and then there's also evidence like the, the current day indigenous peoples who are descendants of those people do have traditions of Fijoa use, of eating them, of using them medicinally, making teas from the leaves for all different kinds of medicinal purposes. Um, so, yeah, it seems pretty likely that these people have had a really long relationship with the Fijoa, much longer than ours. Onwards, so you learnt more about those traditions. You were just telling us that South Americans have developed with Fijoa and in, in, in the culture that surrounds the fruit. Um, the next story, of course, is where things go from there. Mm. Uh, now, if I get ahead of you or get out of order, just just correct me. Okay. But onwards to France at one point to try and track down Villa Colombia. Yeah. Why, why is that? What is it and why is it important? So the first person to take living Fijoas out of South America and start growing them somewhere else in the world was this French landscape gardener called Edouard André. He had travelled in Colombia and discovered all kinds, well, discovered, you know, <laughs> and collected a whole bunch of um, plants, including the um, the flamingo plant that lots of people have as an, as an indoor plant. He kind of found that in some Colombian valley and brought it back to Europe and made lots of money selling it. Um, he also went to Uruguay in 1890 and some at some point on that trip encountered the Fijoa and brought it home to the French Riviera near Cannes, where he lived. And he planted it in his garden. He had this beautiful house and this big garden with all kinds of different plants from all over the world, which was a real trend on the French Riviera at the time. And he started growing the Fijoa, and seven years later it fruited for the first time, and he got to eat his his Fijoa. And then he wrote uh, an article for that was published in newspapers all around the world, kind of introducing this new fruit, and he started selling seedlings of it. Um, so he had this one tree growing in his garden, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to find that garden and find that tree? Like, I wonder if it still exists. I ended up getting in touch with his great-granddaughter, Florence, and making an arrangement to meet her uh, in the south of France because she had thought that it was prob- the, the garden and the villa had been um, basically converted into a hotel or you know knocked down, but she wasn't totally sure, and so we decided to go and look for it. And long story short, after many ups and downs, we did eventually find um, this garden and this villa, and it was still intact. And... Um, Did you find the tree? Well, we didn't find the old. We didn't find a tree that was really old. There was a Fijoa in there, but um, it seemed like any previous one had died. It was pretty sadly. close to ground zero, though, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. By, by yeah. the way, it's a myrtle, isn't it? Um, yeah. And, 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 and what, what else is it? What, what else are its nearest relatives? So the myrtle family, the Matassia family, is a huge family of plants that includes the Pahutakawa and the eucalyptus and yeah, the my- European myrtles and Fijoas. So there's like it's giant and. There's a lot, there's like a thousand species in that family. Mm. 
Anyway, that was France. Then onwards mm-hmm. to Berlin, Germany. What was the point of going there? Yeah, so that's actually a bit further back in the Fido's story. So mm-hmm. I wanted to know how it got its name and how plants kind of get kind of claimed for science. And um, in, there's a sort of really interesting period in history in the 1800s where Europeans were, were travelling around, the naturalists were travelling around the world trying to d- discover, in inverted commas, new plants and animals. And so the guy that sent the first samples of the Fijo are not alive but like pressed leaves and flowers he sent them back to Berlin this was a guy called Friedrich Sello he was Prussian German and he traveled around Brazil on the back of a mule for many years until he eventually drowned in a river um, <laughs> but, I don't know whether that's a joyous or a tragic life or a bit of both I don't yeah he was certainly yeah so he has all these amazing diaries and sketches of the people that he met and the plants and the animals that he saw and and I wanted to see those, and I wanted to see the the specimen, like the scientific specimen that represents the Fijoa for science, which is in the Berlin Herbarium. Um, so that's why I went there. And to Italy? Yeah, that was actually just across the border from France. Um, I was I went to the French Riviera um, trying to find traces of these early Fijoas that had been brought there. Um, and I was looking for really, like since I couldn't find the... Andre's original Fijo, I was trying to find the oldest Fijo I could find that was actually dated and ended up finding that just across the French-Italian border in the Hanbury Garden, which is this beautiful garden that kind of tumbles down to the Mediterranean. And there's a huge, big, rambling Fijo in there that was definitely there in 1912 and possibly earlier. But that's the... There, there, there may be, I'm sure there are older Fijo trees, but that's the oldest one I could date. You found Fijo fanatics in every corner. They, they call it the people's fruit. Where did that originate from, by the way? I think the people's fruit is a New Zealand term. I think that's what we, that's right. what we call it. Um, there was a, a spin-off article a few years ago which referred to the Fido as the world, New Zealand's most socialist fruit. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why we love it so much in New Zealand and why I think it has a special meaning and why I wrote about Fijoas and I didn't write about tamarillos or um, persimmons is damn well this, in a fruit salad though, don't they? With they are deli- they're both delicious, yogurt. but <laughs> but they don't have this element of of gifting ah. that the Fijoa has. Which and is so, which is well, it's I think it's biological in a way. It's the way that the fruit isn't doesn't store well and then is extremely abundant for a few weeks a year and gets to the point where you can't use them anymore, but you don't want to waste them, but you can't store them, and so you give them away. Now I understand. So this is where, and again, this is I just don't live in this society. This is where Connie's come in at work with whole armfuls of them that they've got from, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a, a grandmother's backyard or it's come down from the Wairapa yep. or always everything was down the, the Wairapa here. A wheelbarrow. Exactly. <laughs> and everyone else runs off with them, and I, I go, no thanks. So, <laughs> exactly. so this is it. And, and can you not preserve it either? Yeah, you can. Um, but it's it's it, it, I don't know it's and preserved fajoas like you can freeze them and you can make jam they and just you can the cook same. them up but it's not quite the same as this the freshness of the freshly fallen fajoa. So it's like and, a gorging season. Yeah, yeah, and then a gifting season, and I think mm. that's really important because one of the I read this beautiful book in my research um, called Braiding Sweetgrass, which a lot of people have read. It's by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a Native American botanist, and she talks about how. Uh, when you gift something, its meaning changes. It's quite different from if you buy it. And if you if 
the fijoas are gifted to you from your neighbour, from your colleague. They like they taste of that connection, and they mean something quite different than if you'd gone to the shop and bought them at the supermarket. And so I think that that's a really special element of the fijoas here. Kate Evans is our guest. Fijoa, a story of obsession and belonging, uh, is her book. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. Uh, as you said, the botanists were fascinated. Um, various others were, were traipsing around the place. When did this go from being a wild fruit, however, to one that was, uh, the word used is tamed, which always seems unfortunate, but, but <laughs> one that was tamed for growing by humans? Yeah, and the geneticist that I talked to in Brazil um, said that it's only incipiently domesticated, as in it's only like a little bit tamed. Um, compared to something like a strawberry, which we've completely transformed, or a carrot um, throughout through breeding. But that process actually started in the United States, in California. Um, in the early 1900s, it was predicted to be the fruit of the century. They had great high hopes for the Fijoa. And they, some of the, the nurserymen there, who are the you know, people who... They breed. They they take cuttings and they do grafting and they 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 were really obsessed with new plants from all different places. They were importing seeds. They were sending corresponding with other net, um, nurserymen all around the world and trying to grow all these different exotic plants and see what would thrive. Um, and they a few of those guys started to select uh, varieties. So that basically you grow a whole bunch of fijoas from seed and you see which ones have big fruit or delicious fruit or lots of fruit, and you choose those ones and then. Um, breeding is when you then try to cross them and get particular traits. But the first step is just selecting the one that is doing really well, and then you can take a clone of that by a cutting or a graft or different ways. Um, and so the first varieties were selected over there, and though some of those came to New Zealand in the early in like the 1920s, and then New Zealanders uh, a New Zealand guy called Hayward Wright who started to. Uh, breed, select his own own varieties and kind of popularised the fijoa in New Zealand. Should I tell you about Hayward Wright? Yeah, go ahead. So he basically, he had a giant orchard at, on the Avondale Peninsula in Auckland. And that whole that whole area, which is now suburb, uh, was kind of a garden. And he was a pretty cantankerous old guy by all accounts, but he really loved his fruit. And he really loved Fijoas. And he, uh, when I was looking back in the papers past records for old newspaper articles about Fijoas, there were heaps by him kind of talking them up. And so this was kind of in the 20s and the 30s, and I think he really helped to make the Fijoa famous in New Zealand. Uh, and he also released a few varieties of Fijoa that people could buy. He's also the guy that selected the Hayward uh, cultivar of kiwi fruit which is the one the kind of the basis of the modern kiwi fruit industry so yeah he's quite important in New Zealand's horticultural history whence from whence did it go then where has it really taken hold quite literally um, uh, as a um, as a horticultural uh, commodity if you like are there particular parts of the country that that grow and grow a lot yeah good question I mean across the north generally and um, Nelson that kind of area but I don't know, like I don't know what the, what the stats are. They certainly grow very well in north in the Bay of Plenty, the Waikato where I am, and um, Nelson and Golden Bay. There's a lot of fijoas growing down there. Uh, obviously, in the Northlands, having a problem with guava moth at the moment. But um, yeah, they do. They, I'm told they grow quite well in Christchurch, and there are even certain spots in Southland where you can grow them if you get your microclimate right. Are they a great backyard fruit? Are they uh, a prevalent backyard fruit? Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason 
for its you know huge popularity here. They're re- they're really easy to grow. You don't really have to do much. They they thrive in New Zealand soils and environment. Uruguay is pretty similar to New Zealand climatically, and um, I think our soils are better, like more um, with that with the volcan- our volcanic soils are richer, and so they possibly even grow better here than they do in their native countries. Uh, you mentioned I don't know if we touched on it um, California um, again in this in this early stage of them beginning to um, uh, beginning to become a, a horticultural fruit. Who were um, was it? Is it Papano and Franceschi? Uh, yeah, you touched on it already. Yeah, no. So Francesco Franceschi was this um, nurseryman who predicted it would be the fruit of the century. He was an Italian in Santa Barbara. And Wilson Popino was kind of his protege, who became a fruit explorer in his own right. I've met my hero, isn't it? Or I've met my something, my... Yeah, he was like 16 years old when he sort of went up to meet Francesco Franceschi and was just like, had his mind blown. Um, These these guys were also um, part of the people who brought avocados to America from Mexico and kind of popularized the avocado. So it went quite well for the avocado, not so much for the Fijoa. But um, Popino wrote this whole, this beautiful kind of, um, illustrated article in 1912 all about the Fido and its history, which was an amazing source for me. And just he was just so enthusiastic. It was yeah. I, I don't want really, to be. I, quite like I, I don't want to bring in the downer side of this, but you know, was the exploitation at some point, uh, exploitation of culture or of people, as the industry developed, or has it been less so than many other uh, commodities like coffee or cocoa or anything else? Yeah, well, there just isn't that much of an industry, to be honest. Mm. Like, New New Zealand, we export a small amount. Colombia, which it's not native to Colombia, but it grows well in certain parts of the Andes. They export quite a lot. Um, Otherwise, it's it's a street tree. It's a backyard fruit. It's not grown. it's retained in innocence. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I definitely found stories of exploitation in, in my researching of the history, particularly... In Uruguay, with the indigenous cultures there, when I was trying to find out what its name would have been, like what people's, like indigenous peoples in Uruguay's relationship would have been, I basically discovered that um, the Charua, one of the main indigenous groups there, there was a terrible genocide in the 19th century, which, which, and the result of that was that people in Uruguay don't really know their native fruits. They don't really know the fitoa very well. Most, many people might not have even eaten it because, um, the indigenous culture and therefore and native plants had kind of been repre- were kind of repressed basically over the last century. But the good news is that at the moment, um, with the chef that I met, um, she's trying to revive the native fruit culture, and then there's also a revival of the charua culture and identity happening at the moment as well. This goes all the way back to the person you first met when you first travelled in 2014. Yeah, nice Laura circuit. Rosano is her name. Yeah, um, you've got recipes at the start of each chapter. Is there a favourite you want to mention to us? From the book? Hmm. Or just of yours? It's, is, is it far more versatile than than someone like me understands? Same yeah. Man, sweet dishes? So I asked um, some of the people who I met to contribute recipes to the book. So there's just six, uh, one for each of the locations, basically. And they range from the extremely simple Fijoa jam that was contributed by um, a Afro-Brazilian woman that I met in a the community there, um, Elizabeth. She, she gave her her simple jam recipe and then uh, all the way up to this kind of Michelin star restaurant in the French Riviera who contributed an elaborate um, Fijoa kefir and raw fish capacho. 
So that's like, getting pretty fancy. Now yeah. you're talking my language, Kate. <laughs> and, and so there's a whole lot of savoury dishes. Um, Maori chef um, Joe McLeod, who features in one of the chapters, um, gifted me a recipe of, um, which is like venison, wild mushrooms in Fijoa. Oh, wow. In pastry. And... Um, yeah, and then there was a chef that I met in Colombia at the Festival of the Fijoa. He showed me. We actually made this together. We made these, um, they're like tamales. They're corn with fi- like caramelized Fijoa inside wrapped up in the corn um, sheaths. Okay, I'm converted, Kate. Um, well done. <laughs> Congratulations. You've, you've used the word gifted a lot and gifting. And you talked about the Yes, you, you talked mm. about the word gifting of the fruit is, is one of the reasons it's called the people's fruit because it all comes at once. And you reminded me of a wonderful book I must go and reread. Have you read Lewis, Lewis Hyde, H-Y-D-E? Have you read his book, The Gift? Mm. No, I haven't. It's, it's about creativity and uh, the role of art in our lives and huh. uh, how transformative it is and also how we must support our artists because what they are doing is not a commodity but a gift. It's quite mind-blowing. So, Oh, I want to read it. I think well, you should. Uh, thank I you hope very this much. book is a gift to the Fijoa lovers too. There you go. Thank you. Kate Evans, Fijoa, A Story of Obsession and Belonging is published by Mawa Press.